Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a sunny spring morning here in the capital is Helene Berman. Helene is the founder and managing director of Charles Gray London Limited Trading has Helene Berman, a well-known design label. Um, Helene, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us on the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme with us today. Um, I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that is the fact that although we are seeing some green shoots and moving out of social restrictions, we have been in the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic for the best part of 14 months, and we're still not quite out of that. So reflecting on sort of this last year in a bit, Helene, um, to what extent would you say that the pandemic has affected you and affected your business? Well, it's definitely um, had a huge um, impact on the business. Um, Obviously, retail has been incredibly uh, impacted by COVID. Uh, The the, the furlough has helped hugely. So last March or March a year before, um, it was impossible to know how long this was all going to go on for and what the meaning would be. Uh, we were in the middle of a season which we work six months ahead, so we're producing. And so that everybody knows, my USP is that we produce in the UK. So we are looking after um, quite a large number of people in the UK who produce my collection and uh, manufacture it for me. Uh, The first shock that we had was to find out that the gentleman that makes all of our samples um, had become ill and in fact had died of COVID within the first couple of weeks, which was a huge shock. Um, We knew we were going to have to close the factory down for a period of time. We knew that the offices would have to shut, but we needed to know what would happen to all of our materials, everything that we had ready to make for the following season. Uh, The first really difficult thing was that 30% of our business was export and in America. Uh, they made it very clear very early on that whatever we had ready for them or going forward, at that particular point, they would not be able to take it. However, they were incredibly um, supportive and um, we worked with with very, very good companies over there uh, that they would take the merchandise, but they would not take it for um, at least, I think at that point, it was about four months. 
and they would push it all out four months at a time. Uh, we would then finish all of the uh, orders that we had for them by December. That went um, as well as can be expected, except, of course, financially we had to hold all of the goods and we had to produce the goods knowing we wouldn't get paid uh, for at least 60 days after delivering. So as you can imagine, that's a large impact on a small business such as ours. So you're expecting to send goods out in May. They're then not going to go out until, uh, sorry, I think it was March and April. They would not go out until September and then you'd be waiting another 60 days. So that was um, a large challenge. Uh, the people that we were working with in the UK were all very, we were all very supportive to one another. Wherever we could um, cut back orders that they had on uh, for, the, for their retail stores, we, we did it. Uh, where we couldn't, they eventually decided that they would um, take everything in. So we suffered very few cancellations, which is a bit, as a business, I felt we were extremely lucky. We had um, one customer in Ireland who um, panicked straight away and cancelled everything and said, you know, don't even come to the doors because we won't let you in with your merchandise, which was a bit, that was a bit sad when everybody else was being so um, helpful to us. Uh, we have hugely skilled workers in our factory and they all needed and need looking after. So, um as I say, the furlough was very, very helpful to us. As soon as we could get back to work, we did within our own offices, which is not where our factory is, but it's where our offices and showrooms are. Um, we got our team back very quickly. Uh, slightly strangely, well, we had one member of staff who decided that um, she was going to go back to university and study science where she'd done her degree. So that was very helpful. Uh, so we didn't have to worry about her because, of course, you know, one, one is constantly concerned about your team. Mm. Uh, and another member of staff um, had to go back to Korea because um, she, her, her work permit had run out. So that was two people that we had to worry about. And a third person who... Uh, decided eventually uh, that she wanted to work from home forever and um, decided to use a bit, go to a big conglomerate and work for them. She was part of our logistics team. Uh, however, we have gained some very good members for, to the team. Um, some of it is because, well, most of it is because they were actually made redundant from other jobs in our industry. So we've got some very new but skilled workers on our team, which is great for us going forward. We've also had, I've been extremely lucky because I work for a, been taken on by a TV channel, which I probably can't mention the name of, so won't do. But um, that's been wonderful because um, TV channels during the lockdown have gained huge amount of customers uh, and are doing very, very well. And my company uh, is part of that. I actually um, present the collection um, on the 
on 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 the shows. So that's been very very good. But then we have to think about how we were going to show the next collection because I would normally have travelled to the states. I would have travelled to see all my customers, but you couldn't have a face to face meeting, and it's still very difficult to do so um, in that way. So we had to do it in a different way. So we have we produced a very very nice lookbook with all of our styles for the next season and sent it out to all of our customers so that they would be able to uh, look through it, then book a Zoom call or a Teams uh, and work together in that way. Of course, it's not exactly the same or not nowhere near the same as having a face-to-face, but it seems to have worked very well. Um, after our meetings, we've always produced um, a recap of that meeting, uh, sending them all the ideas and designs that we've had. And one can always send fabrics as well if, um, if, if that's what customers want. So we've, that, that, that's been very good for us. That is the way we have managed to um, take it forward and try not to lose any customers. Of course, that's not easy. And of course, the orders are not as big as they would have been. Mm. But now we're coming out of all of this lockdown. We're finding people who um, love the idea that everything we do is made in Britain, made in the UK. Um, and they're coming to us because, of course, there's lots of customs clearance and so on, which have been impacted by Brexit and caused um, a lot, lot of delays. Uh, and so this has been, and I'm sure it will be going forward, people will love the, the, the fact that we have and do produce in the UK. We have a very small amount of, of, um, of our production abroad. Uh, this is actually run by a gentleman who was in the UK for many, many years, and we had a relationship together, um, a working relationship, I should add, mm-hmm. um, uh, on, um, and because he's gone somewhere and we trust him, we can trust what he's doing. But 99% of what we do will stay in the UK because that is what I want to do. I want to uh, support British workers, British business, uh, and I love the fact that more people are coming to us, not purely for that reason, because we have a, a, a you know it's a very good collection, very beautifully made, and we make it beautifully here. As I said, with these hugely skilled workers, who uh, we have a marvellous relationship with. It's fantastic to hear um, that things are sort of starting to go well as we move out of the social restrictions and. Uh, I think it is fantastic as well that um, there is this renewed vigour, if you will, coming out of the crisis to buy British, which you've rightfully touched on there, Elaine, as well. And um, that's something I'd like to sort of discuss in a little bit more detail shortly. But just before we do do that, um, I would like to sort of look back at the last 14 months as a whole, because even though it has been a very challenging and quite tragic experience for so many people, um, people seem to feel that they've learnt an awful lot from the pandemic period. So would you say that you've learnt anything as a business leader in your position from guiding your business through this last year? I've just had to learn how to do it, how to keep it afloat um, in a different way. 
um, which has been a challenge, but interesting. As I said, we show the collection in a totally different way. We speak to customers in a totally different way. We know that their needs at the moment are less than they were, but we are working together. Um, and it's see, it's it, it you know everybody is finding different ways of making things work, like restaurants, hospitality. Uh, this is our way within fashion. So we're still trying to keep our customers interested in our public. We're doing a little bit of ourselves online. Um, people still want things. There's, there is an appetite, surprisingly, for fashion. But that people, it, it, it makes people feel good, um, uh, as the sunshine does today. So uh, that's what we're, we're just learning how to navigate through it. Uh, we would like the um, export business to uh, pick up, and I hope that it will, uh, but it, it may take a little time. But we're there to you know, support all of the um, people that we've been working with, all these partners that we've had over the years. But as I said, we're finding more people within the UK who are loving the fact that everything's made in the UK. Mm. That's just marvellous. And that they know that people are able then to keep their jobs which is what we want. Uh, we'd like some more um, training for, as I said, all these skilled workers, but maybe it wasn't something that they wanted to go into before, but now they realise that there is a future in it. I think that's very right. And um, if we talk about Buy British in a little bit more detail now, of course, um, export business has been a real challenge over the course of the uh, the last uh, few months since Brexit was fully enacted in January. But that renewed vigour, as we've talked about, to sort of buy British-made produce and sort of back domestic businesses, that's something that's only going to bode well for the post-pandemic recovery, isn't it? I think so. I, I'm, I, I am hopeful uh, that it will all come out in the wash, so to speak, when people get back to uh, normal life the people that we were exporting to will um, feel confident that they can buy from us without it costing them huge amounts of money. Uh, because I think that they're always worried about bringing things in and what this will mean with Brexit, what will the um, extra costs be, because there are extra costs involved um, with us getting fabrics in from abroad. But that is something that we do and um, we will continue to do. And I would like to talk about the future in a little bit more detail, um, Elaine, just before we do uh, wrap things up on the uh, the programme, because I'm conscious that we're beginning to run short of time. Um, we are, of course, in the context of the here and now, moving out of social restrictions very slowly. Um, but over the next sort of 12 months, what is your hope for you and for your business? And where is it you're really hoping to be this time in 2022 as we hopefully leave the pandemic behind? We're, we're hoping that we will be back to, to growth again, back to growing the business, not just sustaining what we've got. We will be actively looking for uh, more opportunities. As I said, we've got some fantastic opportunities on um, the TV channels. That has grown even over the pandemic. It's grown hugely for us and for them. 
so we visualize that being just the start of something big that's what we're so we're hoping there we see that you know online will still be busy which is a great sadness that we've lost a lot of these um a huge amount of people on the high street have have gone so we have to see what that's going to mean how they're going to how's everybody going to reinvent themselves where's this phoenix coming up from the ashes of all of that retail that that is um very important as to how that's going to go back that uh, jobs for everybody uh it's, it's a hugely important part of of, of of the economy mm. and we have lost a huge amount of it i can see that the next six months i don't even need a crystal ball for that i can see that the next six months are um absolutely they're good and we want them to just be bigger we're just we haven't seen everybody that we will see for our autumn collections but slowly slowly and being patient um i see them I see it. I see it growing. Uh, there's a there's a big appetite out there for getting back to a normal life and a good life. I think that's very right, and it's certainly going to be an interesting time for the retail sector as it adjusts to this changing landscape, and hopefully, certainly, it can adjust well and come back strong. And I think as we begin to see sort of the fog lifting as it were and we start to understand the shape that the industry is going to be in and how sector businesses are getting on that it would be great Elaine to welcome you back onto the program with us and just gauge what's been happening in the sector since we've um, spoken today and just catch up on how your business is uh, performing in the landscape as well. Well I'd be very happy to, um, to be part of what you need and what we're doing. And I think it would be fantastic to once again share um, the story of how your business is getting on with the listeners as well, because it is nice to hear that there has been sort of some successful adaptation and some sort of real progress going forward and some signs of hope post-COVID. And um, also, uh, just before we do uh, finish up, uh, because we are not quite out of the woods with this yet, even though we're not far away, uh, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on in the world too. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to talk to you. Likewise, Elaine, it's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the show today. And uh, coming up next on the programme, we'll be welcoming our incumbent chairman and also the former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, onto the show. And he'll be discussing his take on the last 14 months and what is hopefully to come in future. Um, That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing 
staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 or all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did want to do a business studies qualification which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time but to others around you and the sector that you're working in that will be really important do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the covid19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that 
Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country 
that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, 
experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with mm. you you can you can sponsor reports and this is true of business planning of course as well and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like recovery plans for business what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack what happens if there's an energy shutdown sh- shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.